Support comes from Spectrum Reach, focused on making local businesses big and big brands look local. Putting businesses' big ideas on every screen to reach new customers. Learn more at SpectrumReach.com. Welcome to Spectrum Reach. Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient. I'm Miles Bloxon. The coronavirus pandemic has done what few thought probable and almost no one thought possible. It has brought the world's economy to its knees. It has also exposed the very dark underbelly of a weak system and a fragile infrastructure, enabled by an exploited and now essential workforce. What will this pandemic mean for agricultural workers, for our food systems, for women, for people of color? Can we imagine constructing a way back to a new normal that will be more sustainable and human for people and the planet? We'll discuss these questions and more on the Secret Ingredient COVID-19 series, hosted by Raj Patel of the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs, Tom Philpot, food and agriculture reporter for Mother Jones Magazine, and KUT's Rebecca McEnroy. On this episode, we reconnect with the evolutionary biologist Rob Wallace, author of Big Farms Make Big Flu, Dispatches on Infectious Disease, Agribusiness, and the Nature of Science. He explains the link between global outbreaks of infectious disease and global agriculture, and so much more. Stay with us. This season of The Secret Ingredient, we are, of course, talking about COVID-19. What we want to do is begin immediately with the man who saw this coming. This week, we're talking to Rob Wallace. His book, Big Farms Make Big Flu, is one that we've covered in the past, but we wanted to catch up with Rob for a number of reasons, and you'll hear those reasons now. But Rob, how are you? Doing okay. I'm hanging in there. And where are you? I'm currently at my house in St. Paul, Minnesota. I am uh, self-quarantined here with uh, just much of the rest of the country. Must be a, a moment of particularly deep schadenfreude, where you've seen this coming for a while, and now you're in the thick of things in ways that feel unspeakable. What can you tell us about what you've been saying and seeing over the past uh, week or so? Well, I mean, there is, of course, the difficulty of suffering as some sort of Cassandra complex of, uh, you know, bringing this up for nearly a decade now and more sharply in the book came out in 2016, but explaining and asking people to put attention toward this and not having few people respond or listen to is difficult, but then uh, actually being proved somewhat correct, uh, that's not any fun either. Uh, I mean, I've been keeping an eye on this since uh, it first spilled over market out in Wuhan. And so I've been uh, going back and forth with colleagues about this for some time. And um, certainly as it spilled out across the rest of the province and then into other uh, Chinese provinces, and we knew we had uh, a real difficult thing in hand. One of the dangers of a pandemic or the difficulties of it is it acts as something of a mirror. Societies get to see themselves in full regalia and individuals do as well, but for our purposes here, uh, you know, we have a society that in essence monetized dismantling the entire entirety of the public commons. And I mean, we didn't have much of a hospital system, but that's been so privatized to the point millions of Americans, I think something like 28 million Americans without any insurance and 44 million underinsured. Even in the early days of the outbreak here, you had uh, people showing up trying to do the right thing by virtue of themselves, their family, and their community, uh, going to a hospital to be tested and uh, being charged 3,000 bucks for, for the privilege of, of that. You know, already we were 
here in the United States, we're certainly in the hole in terms of, of responding to it. So this is, that's on the, um, you know, this end of it. And, and there's a part of me that certainly since we last had our conversation where I, I kind of almost got tired of talking about uh, outbreaks and the human costs. When any of these pathogens go human to human, my feeling I kind of arrived at, it's kind of like the, the horse has already left the barn at that point, and the only thing you can do is batten down the public health hatches and do the best you can. That's not necessarily all quite true, because there is very much a, a left program dedicated toward responding to an outbreak and being abandoned by a, a state that is most definitely a, has a class character to it operates in, in the favor of uh, the affluent at the expense of everybody else. So, you know, all these mutual aid networks that have emerged, certainly both encouraging, but also uh, indictment, the inability of a bourgeois state to be able to take care of its citizens during the, the most difficult times. But I, I kind of stopped wanting to talk about this part because I just realized, oh, this is totally the wrong end of things. I mean, you know, I mean, we most definitely need an emergency response, but we're interested in actually stopping these pathogens from emerging in the first place. Well, you have to go to where the action is and where the um, pathogens are first emerging. That's why I've spent the last couple of years on the other end of things, working with farmers and food activists on rearranging our agriculture in a way that would, in essence, at least help us arrive at a detente with these pathogens. So if they spilled over, they wouldn't cause much damage. We could select for pathogens that weren't as virulent, that it uh, wouldn't spill over more than uh, a local area. So um, those are some of the things that popped to mind in the last week. Hey, Rob, I wonder if you could take a step back and review for us the connection between this sort of threat of industrial agriculture in this past half century or so, and the sort of massive niche created for these virulent human-to-human pathogens. Well, you know, over the Last decade, uh, my group and I have been looking at the outbreaks of different pathogens as they emerge. H5N1 was the celebrity outbreak at the turn of the century, followed by H7N9, another uh, avian influenza. And then we had SARS and MERS. I don't have that quite in the right chronological order, but uh, you had Zika, you had uh, Ebola. So we were looking at uh, these different pathogens and our kind of conclusion, our rubric under which we began to organize things was that it wasn't merely a matter of each pathogen. Each pathogen is very different from each other uh, in terms of its taxonomy, in terms of its mode of transmission, in terms of its uh, impact on humans and their clinical course, uh, in terms of their treatment, all these things. But they, they all are emerging in a context of, of a shift in land use and agricultural production stemming out of changes uh, since World War II. You know, we have the uh, emergence of establishing of the livestock revolution in which uh, backyard poultry and, and hog and other livestock are now uh, kind of reconstituted in, in under the uh, roof of a single company. They're vertically integrated, fertilization all the way through to processing. That it doesn't just change the nature of the production, and we can talk about that uh, in due course, but clearly the number of animals producers is exploded to the root. So, you know, you go from like 700 million uh, poultry here in the United States to 6 billion. And uh, I mean, we end up being uh, exporting that model to around the world. So there, in essence, around the world, you have all these cities of poultry and cities of, of pigs uh, arising. They're arising and being built increasingly by... Uh, cutting into the primary environments and, and, and forests. This is a voracious appetite for, for land to raise these animals or, and to feed them. Uh, and so in effect, planet Earth has been transformed into planet farm. 
I mean, if you look at some of the graphs showing the uh, changes in the biomass distribution, I mean, there are millions of more tons of, of livestock biomass than there are wild animals at this point. That has a, a foundational impact on the, um, our epidemiologies as we cut in more into the forest. What were previously marginalized pathogens uh, begin to spill over into uh, our local livestock and labor uh, in a way they hadn't previously. And a, a great example of that, I mean, it's, it's uh, prototypical at this point, is that of Ebola. So Ebola, since 1976, was repeatedly spilling over in, into uh, humans and maybe a stray uh, troop of gorillas. And, you know, it's devastating. It just wipes everybody out. You know, these case fatality rates of like 90%. But then by 2013, you have the uh, West African Ebola outbreak. And, you know, the, the pathogen itself is really not that different. Genetics pretty much the same. Clinical course generation time for infection pretty much the same, and yet you have an outbreak that spreads across three countries, infecting 35,000 people and killing 11,000, leaving bodies in the streets of regional capitals. And what happened? And there's so much focus on the biomedical field and the epidemiological field to look at the differences in the, in the pathogen itself, and there really wasn't any differences. And it has to do with what we view as a kind of parallax effect. You know, when you look at a a glass of water in front of you and you have a particular background, then the, the glass of water has a, a certain color or even given the optical illusion, a certain shape to it. But if you look at the glass of water from a different direction and a different background, in, in essence, it's a different object, not in the object itself, but because of the background. And then this is what our hypothesis is, is that there was a foundational shift in the background of West Africa. As logging and mining and agriculture starts to, to really dig into the Congo there and other forests in the region, it changes the nature of the forest. And so forests are very complex places. I mean, they are, are characterized by this kind of environmental stochasticity, a kind of complexity to that. You know, if anyone's walked through a neotropical forest, even people who, who grew up there, I mean, you have uh, all sorts of things going on. It's hard to keep attention on everything going on. And so for any pathogen in a host, it's unlikely in terms of time and space that you'd come across another host to, to spill over into. And, um, and uh, so there, there's, in essence, the forest acts a kind of a self-correction upon spread of the pathogen. Well, what happens when you come and start clear-cutting things, not only do you knock things down, but you, you change the nature of the forest. I mean, most of the hosts that are supporting these pathogens might die out because of the deforestation, but uh, some hosts hit the jackpot and they uh, are able to respond uh, in a way that kind of expresses their behavioral plasticity in the face of this challenge. And then the example then, of course, uh, the frugivore bats who are in a natural reservoir for Ebola. And so instead of just dying off, they uh, are actually adjusting to the new plantations that are built. So palm oil plantations are an ideal landscape for these frugivore and insectivore bats who, uh, you know, there's no competition, no predators, you got nice, you know, space between your foraging sites and your roosting sites. And of course, there's an increased uh, interface with humans. You have an increase in the rate of spillover from these bats into humans and an increase in the diversity of, of pathogens that can spill over. So that's the kind of the supply end of it, uh, as it were, in terms of the forest, you know, because you're, you're cutting down the forest you're smoothing it out in such a way that any pathogen can line up a bunch of hosts much faster and allow the pathogen to, to spill out over and then subsequently into humans. The demand side, of course, is that, and this is a, an example that many uh, people have written up on, is the structural adjustment programs have very much uh, imposed and shifted um, 
the um, the healthcare and uh, animal healthcare outlays to to countries that accept loans from the World Bank and IMF and, and et cetera. Uh, so once a pathogen gets into a human population and starts going human to human, uh, there isn't the health in infrastructure necessary to detect and, and filter out an, an outbreak at, at its source. And so all of a sudden, along with the shifts in the ge economic geography of the regions, there's much more cycle migration. So people are working uh, in, the, in the cities, but also coming back home to in the rural areas to work on their, their farm for a couple months. And so uh, once a pathogen gets into a rural com community, it's able to blast out into the regional capital. So in this case, you know, it's not about the specifics of the biomolecular aspects of the pathogen, even though those are indeed very much important. But it has to do with um, very much uh, the, the shifting context. And that's a real hard thing for, for many people to, to grasp on because we have such a focus on finding causality in the object of things, in this case, the pathogen or, or the infection, and, and not seeing that causality extends out into the greater field, and that our forests and um, primary environments are actually conducting a lot of work for us by virtue of um, uh, keeping pathogens from, from spilling over to begin with. In the spirit of never let a crisis go to waste in this right. moment, with the world listening finally to what you've been saying, how can you put together, or what does a response from big agriculture look like to this current moment? Big ag? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing because uh, over the last 20 years, I'd say, the a big ag has been confronted with something that it hadn't been confronted before, and that is a challenge to the, the narrative of food that they had for so long commanded. Um, and, you know, it started off as a kind of a bourgeois revolt. You know, you have the uh, foodies objecting to the lack of nutrition in, in their food and a demand that uh, they have access to real food. And, you know, at first, Big Ag, in my view, was challenged by this, but then they bought up all the organic food companies. And so they dealt with the increasing divide in the, the food market, which reflects the increasing divide in the country, where you have a small population that has the money to pay for organics and good foods. And then much of the rest of the country is, is fed crap. But if you buy the organic companies too, then you've got can arch yourself across this increasing divide to command the the market. Um, but on the last round, we last talked. I'm not sure on your show, but uh, it was discussing how uh, big ag has a way of bringing uh, not just all Americans together, but everyone around the world together because so many uh, groups despise big ag because of what it represents, uh, not just the food aspects, not just the, um, the animal rights objections, uh, then of course the labor objections, the way the food processors and smallholders are treated as, as much as sides of beef as the animals that they tend to. Of course, the, um, all the other externalities they're involved in, you know, the pollution of water and pollution of air, just absolute destruction of the town economy and the pushing out of rural people out of their, their land. And um, so there is increasing difficulty upon uh, big ag to maintain command of this, this food narrative. Now, what's really easy for big ag when it comes to an outbreak like this is that you can always blame the virus, you know? And so there's a lot of focus, this virus, or as has happened since the emergence of these influenzas out of China is to blame China, which is another 
obvious tactic to go to. And then, of course, you can always blame the, the contract smallholders, the ones that the people, farmers you hire for not uh, adhering to uh, company standards when, in fact, the smallholders are doing exactly what they're required to in terms of raising day-old poultry, for instance, growing them out and then shipping them back for processing. This is a kind of economic geography in that, right? There's where uh, the smallholder, let's say in the global south, might be closer on the edge of the uh, deforestation and therefore closer to where that spillover we discussed might be taking place. And then in the course of raising these animals out, then the uh, animals are shipped back into uh, processing, typically closer to uh, the regional capital. And in there, you have an expanding geography of, as you cut into forests, the forest stretches out farther and farther from the city, but it's increasingly economically much more in contact with the city. An exotic pathogen that spills over from wild animal into a livestock. Or, you know, and this is the focus been on, on this round for COVID, the wild animals themselves are actually raised as uh, livestock at this point or captured in the deep forest and then shipped to the, um, the cities for, for sale. So Big Ag has actually developed a really uh, sophisticated operation. I mean, standard management practice to blame someone else at this point for and then use the outbreak as a means of uh, imposing a kind of ideology of biosecurity on all other farmers that require would of course demand uh, independent smallholders uh, adhere to uh, biosecurity standards that they can't possibly uh, pay for. Uh, the irony or the terrible irony of all this is that there's nothing biosecure about industrial operation. <laughs> I mean that's the really amazing thing. I mean think about it. You want to put in 15,000 turkeys, all genetically the same, smashing them together, 250,000 layers, all genetically the same, suffering immune depression by being uh, so up against each other. So any pathogen that gets, that gets in there can just, it selects for the most virulent pathogens because there aren't any immunological fire breaks in there. And, you know, typically is a cap on how much of a badass you can be. I mean, if you're a pathogen in a host and you kill your host too fast, you can't get into the next host. So you got to time the damage you do. You've got to time the replication you do in the host only to the point that you can best be able to select or shift over into your, infect your next host. But if all your hosts, all these susceptibles are around you right there, there's no cap on being a badass. So a pathogen, the strains that are most virulent and you can get to that transmission threshold faster are the ones that are selected for. So you can just burn right through that population there. And that's both at the farm level, at the regional level. Most of these Industrial operations are uh, often clustered together in anyone's uh, country or region as a way of helping with the kind of economies of scale in terms of transport and, and delivery and such. So there's uh, absolutely nothing biosecure about these operations. And I mean, to be able to reverse that and stand that on its head and, and use it as a tool by which to punish smallholders whose operations are exactly in the direction we need to go in is really a triumph in, in propaganda. Well, and, and we're also seeing, Rob, that, uh, you know, Big Ag is taking advantage of, of the situation at the moment to cross a few things off their wish lists um, mm -hmm. in terms of, for example, suspending collective bargaining rights for workers with um, increased incarceration at the border. That means that there are fewer workers available. And normally that would give workers stronger bargaining power. And of course, what do a number of state governors do, but uh, immediately start you know, putting into their emergency plans, the suspension of collective bargaining rights uh, in 
order that you know the producers not suffer the inconvenience of having to listen to their workers. But what, one of the things that's important in what you're saying and inspirational in your work is this deep commitment to internationalism. You know, while we have Trump uh, and his various chauvinisms trying to sort of write the narrative, you point us to a, a recognition that in fact it's invariably U.S. capital and U.S. empire that's propagating disease elsewhere that would, you know, for example, in, in the swine flu story, buy facilities just across the border and then ship back unhealthy animals back to the United States. When one thinks about the positive story that you've been working on since we last spoke, there's much less talk about that sort of internationalism. You know, right now, we're in a United States that is uh, in part able to feed itself because it has, through barrels of guns and trade agreements, enforced a kind of import dependency on the rest of the planet. But what do you see as being perhaps the more international stories of, well, resilience is, is an awful word, but of resistance and of the carving out of a kind of spaces in which a better alternative might emerge from this catastrophe. What, what are you seeing that we, we didn't get to talk about last time that we need to know about now? Well, I, I see um, an increasing understanding and belief among peoples uh, around the world that kind of indigenous groups had uh, understood things very much, uh, much better than any of us, even here on the left, industrial country, can understand in terms of our relationship with the earth and ecologies. And, you know, there is, of course, connected to that a much more involved political economy and, and historical movements of pushing back against uh, local efforts to steal uh, steal land, land grab. And But I, I have, in the last couple of years, become a lot more connected toward that deep understanding that extends hundreds, if not thousands of years. I think the, and this is a personal story I haven't really shared, but um, I was giving a talk at the University of Michigan on some of this stuff, and uh, my host asked me to meet with various people on campus. And there was an anthropology professor who I started talking to and I was sharing stuff with her. I was just discussing about, in essence, um, what capitalism had done, you know, historically speaking, you know, we had this kind of basal metabolism between humanity and nature and industry in the more general sense of what we did to appropriate things from nature to, to exist and continue on. And that, um, you know, that went on, uh, you know, and we lived and died by that in the sense of sometimes it didn't work out and we threw the dice and we failed. So, you know, efforts, uh, you know, empires have rose and fell. And But it was, in, in essence, in a kind of an honest uh, thing, if we could call such a horrible thing as uh, the rise and fall of empires. But we failed on the grounds of, uh, you know, we overexploited our landscape. And often that led to, to collapses. But there's something foundationally different about capitalism and that uh, we have kind of projected, uh, we have alienated humanity to labor and profit. And, uh, but in addition, alienated nature and alienated in our industry, in a more general sense of appropriating nature. And, and we produced a different kind of uh, base of relationships in such a way that's projected off that uh, kind of basal metabolism. And so you have all the interrelationships of trade and economy that received, a, produced a kind of a realer notation or connotation than the, the ecologies on which we depend on in the first place. And so it's really extraordinary to see that come up. I mean, yeah, uh, just last week, uh, you know, Trump was reported to have been so much more upset about the, the decline in the stock market from coronavirus than the coronavirus itself. You know, maybe it has to do with the, you know, 
his calculation of political options. But I think it really is an honest response on his part of speaking. Now, it's not just a Trump thing. It extends into our uh, complete capture by a, a magical thinking in which capitalism operates as if it can project our interrelationships based on uh, commodification, as if those things are realer than the ecologies in which uh, all this is based. Now, I'm, I'm explaining this to this professor, and, and, but then I realized something. Then I also share that my host had actually uh, been invited to go down to uh, uh, Chiapas. The Zapatistas were holding for the second year in a row a conference on science. And they were inviting scientists from Europe and the United States to come and talk. And, and there was discussion about what is the nature of science and all these things. And, and the Zapotec uh, Indians, uh, Zapatistas, are asking a series of questions. And they, they seem to be, what I realized in the course of the ex sharing this with this professor is that, um, uh, in fact, this, this Socratic line of questions that the Zapatistas were offering the scientists wasn't just a matter of them trying to learn about the nature of science. But in, in effect, it was an attempt to try to call back the scientists back to Earth. And so even so many of us lefty radical scientists are inculcated with so many of the premises of a system that we object to, but we, in essence, uh, accept many of those exceptions and operate upon them. And I guess, of course, as I'm explaining this, I'm having a, a moment where I'm realizing in real time um, what the, the Zapatistas were doing. And I was so moved that I, I just uh, lost my shit there. And, I, uh, and it's hard to tell this kind of, to speak of, tell this story because of that foundational understanding that, um, you know, for 500 years, with the understanding very much indigenous peoples are humans, uh, they have their own histories, they, uh, they make decisions uh, about whether to participate in modern life or not. You know, we're not putting anybody on a pedestal, but uh, for, for the most part, you know, for 500 years, uh, indigenous uh, groups have been uh, holding and carrying the flame of the notion that we as a species are, are integrated with a greater ecology. And, and that has been, uh, in essence, abandoned even about uh, on the left. And so, you know, those struggles are foundational. All across Earth, you have land defenders who are in the midst of pitched battles with companies. I mean, Raj, you, you've written uh, quite eloquently on the Green uh, Revolution was an, an, actually a, a counterinsurgency strategy to try to de destroy uh, not just indigenous groups, but in part their appeals, their in interrelationships and their alliances with lefty groups tempting to bring about certain uh, socialisms. And, um, but this thing continues. And I think at this point, you know, the, the stats are astounding, the number of uh, land defenders who are being assassinated. And, uh, and here we are, we, we have primarily indigenous activists who are being uh, killed in record numbers. Some of my group's work is to actually try to map out where those murders are taking place in places like Brazil and Colombia, and spatially correlate them with where companies like Cargill are producing their greatest outflow of crops like soy. And we, we are finding a, a relationship between those two things. So even if companies like Cargill aren't actually paying to have these indigenous environmental activists killed, they're certainly benefiting from the, this um, atmosphere of fear that they're imposing. So uh, saving Earth just in its raw primary environment is a, a most critical part of this. I think the second thing that comes to mind is the, uh, the agriculture being conducted is, um, you know, the, the notion of uh, developing and if not scaling up and certainly scaling out our kind of agroecologies and uh, regenerative agricultures that turn back toward the notion that agricultures are a natural economy.
that depend on things like the sun and water and seasons and the, the life cycle of their animals, and that it's not making agriculture into an industrial uh, operation. You know, livestock aren't widgets. They're living beings. In the course of industrializing animals, we are also industrializing the pathogens that circulate among them. And so they become increasingly virulent and increasingly explosive in terms of being able to spread out from one part of the world to the other. And so this regenerative ag and agroecology is foundational in our efforts to stop uh, pathogens like COVID-19 from emerging and from spreading and for damaging us and killing at this potentially millions of people. And, you know, we want uh, to kind of transition to an ecological agriculture that um, is raises uh, livestock and poultry in a way that uh, you have few fewer uh, numbers of them, so you don't offer the susceptible populations that pathogens love to feed on. But you have uh, their uh, incredible amount of diversity among uh, these animals, and you want to impose the kind of immunological fire breaks that are lost in industrial production. And so that's at the farm level, different uh, animals on the farm, but also across uh, the landscape, so that if you know one farmer has an outbreak there, all the other animals are so different that that pathogen's unlikely to really get a foothold in, on the landscape in a way that uh, this point, you know, like H5N2 in, in upper Midwest in 2015, just ripped through all those uh, industrial Turkey like it was nothing. African swine fever in, uh, in China in yes. 2019 was uh, very similar. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, and there's another example of a, of a pathogen that was um, primarily concentrated into rural areas in the African region. It certainly had multiple modes of transmission, but, you know, really hit the jackpot. I mean, it did spill over into Europe in the 50s and 60s. By the 2000s and in, in, in the last four or five years, it escapes out into Eastern Europe and then makes its way to China and kills half their, their hog. I mean, that's the one that we had our eye on because, uh, you know, hog are so immunologically similar to humans that... Um, the notion that uh, African swine fever would uh, get a foothold in the human population was the one that kept us up at night. Mm. So, um, you know, now we have SARS-2. I mean, I mean, that's the thing. It's not just one after the other now. Now there are, you know, we have these celebrity pathogens emerging in parallel, you know, and, and at the same time, we do have the means and mechanism by which to reverse things. I mean, agribusiness, I, I, you know, I've said this before, but I'm sure there's like the agriculture version of the cigarette papers in the cargo library where they, they already know that this is a, a dying paradigm, but they're going to squeeze out as much as they can. And uh, there are all these alternatives. And I, you know, I spoke about the adversity. I spoke about the, the thing that really, the, the example that really gets me is like industrial poultry and livestock do not reproduce on site. And that has a profound effect on terms of our diseases. You know, if a pathogen gets in and, and wipes out most of the barn, but there are a couple of uh, turkeys still standing standing there. We, maybe there's some quirk in their immunogenetics, and if they happen to survive the infection, that might be a good uh, source by which to breed the next flock, because then they'll have the immunogenetics necessary to, to be able to protect the, the flock from the circulating strain. But life, industrial livestock and poultry uh, don't breed. All the breeding's done at the grandparent level offshore, and and for morphometric characteristics like bigger breasts and fast growth. And so in essence, industrial production has completely removed natural selection as an ecosystem service by which we could uh, protect our flocks and uh, herds and also the, uh, the humans that uh, handle them from being infected. Smallholders, they do that as a matter of course. And that's, the, that's a really wonderful thing is to explain this to an uh, independent farmer and, and uh, see he, uh, he or she come to understand that, that they 
can walk away from the shame that in industry tries to impose on smallholders about biosecurity and, uh, and that they instead are the ones who are conducting the best biosecurity uh, possible in terms of being able to offer kind of these uh, fire breaks on, uh, for outbreaks uh, on, on a landscape shared by wildlife, uh, livestock, and humans. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I wanted to go back to was this idea you were mentioning earlier about how there's even on the left, there's this uh, sort of unconscious or default tendency to buy into this industrial model. And as I know from reading your Facebook feed, there is also a part of the left that explicitly embraces it. There's a kind of eco-modernist or an eco-modernist left or an eco-modernist socialism. Mm -hmm. that cheers on industrial agriculture. And I think it's not a caricature to say that the idea is that if you can consolidate agriculture into these big systems, Mm -hmm. when the revolution comes and we expropriate it, it'll be great. And because it's so efficient, well, I'll have all this sort of free time. I wonder if you could just talk us through this this sort of eco-modernist socialism and how powerful that tendency is, is on the left. I know it's got a foothold in places like Jacobin. And also to sort of talk us through how you respond to it, especially in the wake of a crisis like the one we're in now. Uh, Another way to ask that question, um, which uh, if you could uh, respond to it, maybe by talking a little bit about fake meat, I'd be keen because clearly one of the ways of pushing back against what you've been saying, Rob, is um, that what we need is fully automated luxury impossible burgers. If you hate the industrial meat complex so much, what's wrong with the impossible burger as a solution? Or um, lab, lab burgers. Lab meat or whatever it is, yeah. Well, I mean, the best thing, I mean, if we really wanted to do that, we can just exit the ecology in its entirety and eat pies made of cement. I don't think that's possible because we are very much uh, organic beings who are integrated into the, the fullness of ecology and earth and uh, require clean water. And fortunately, what that does is eco-modernist stance lends itself to the, the very kind of technological advances that are not foundationally integrated with the uh, relations of production. You know, all the GMO stuff, for instance, I really don't spend a lot of time objecting to it on health grounds. I object to it because uh, it's a means and mechanism by which um, industrial ag companies are able to dominate uh, smallholder farmers. Once you get use their GMO seed, you have to use their pesticides and fertilizers and that they trap you into a ratchet of production by which you have to spend almost entirely of your, of your revenue on buying on inputs. I mean, you have all, all these million dollar farmers walking around here in the States uh, who have no money. Uh, because uh, all that's being bought in that direction. I think I was so flummoxed or, or more like puzzled by the eco-modern stance when it came to my attention a couple of years ago, because, you know, as trained as an ecologist, I don't see how that makes much sense because of our foundational integration into the ecology, uh, whether we want to or not. I mean, if uh, much of the Industrial Revolution um, was about uh, imposing our will on nature. It's not merely a matter of uh, merely seizing the means of production uh, that isn't and, and wasn't and will not be enough. You know, Marx himself, uh, you know, what the eco-modernists like to do is like to quote this particular few passages, Marx on machines that he subsequently uh, abandoned. And certainly by the end of his life, he was completely opposed to that because, uh, I mean, the notion of um, machines and control of machines being enough. I mean, wealth is not merely based on our labor. It's a, Labor, of course, is an important part of that, but the other source of wealth is um, nature, what nature provides and, and our uh, cultivation 
uh, of nature. And so those two things are, are fun, fundamentally integrated. You know, and, and there's really some really terrible, hideous takes. Like, uh, I mean, Doug Hedenwood, among other people, has been terrible on this point. I mean, in terms of like, you know, anti-rural statements, you know, dismissing entire populations as being uh, ignorant. And I mean, I know some of the frustration that might come out of it here in the States, the kind of, you know, vast uh, rural support of rightist populism now. But that's not even all true. I mean, there's vast parts of the uh, rural Midwest who, in effect, have been abandoned by uh, uh, neoliberalism. I mean, the very characters that Penwood uh, used to write about. And not to be able to see that interconnection. I mean, if we are in the business of healing the metabolic rift between our ecology and economy, I mean, that has to extend on the political level. I mean, how do those of us who in our urban areas who depend on the food that's produced by rural areas, I mean, how do we make political connections with people who uh, have been, uh, in effect, uh, abandoned and destroyed? I mean, I don't even view agribusiness as a rural phenomenon. It's a suburban phenomenon. I mean, almost all the headquarters in the suburban areas, and they uh, treat the rural areas here in the United States as sacrifice zone by which... The entirety of the resources, the people, the land, the water, the soil is just source for carbon mining. I mean, it's just the, the town economy there has been utterly destroyed and replaced by these pipelines that extend out from the rural areas back to, to agribusiness headquarters. I mean, we need to be able to uh, you know, reach out and make solidarity and alliances with people who uh, are, are foundational to the continuing existence of the country. And, you know, in rural areas have had long histories of radical politics that uh, we, we've since have forgotten and abandoned. And, and we need to make peace and, and make alliances with people who are very clear about what's going on. I mean, you could have a farmer. I mean, very, there are farmers who are engaged in kind of traumatic bonding and that kind of Stockholm syndrome, which they identify the, their, what they're doing with uh, what the company uh, representatives tell them. But for the most part, that's not true. I mean, even farmers who are totally ensconced in the you know, all the high-tech uh, conventional combine ag are uh, very well aware about what trap they're, they're in. And it's more about trying to make their mortgage payments in uh, the next quarter. And, and we should be, uh, it's hard to say, you know, but we should be sympathetic of, in, of their, their context and their, their conundrum and think of ways by which we to work with people and to try to get us out of that operation. Uh, else plays Places else around the world uh, have a much better, clearer understanding of this. And this gets to what Raj was saying about the internationalism. You know, peoples around the world who are, are foundationally uh, opposed to efforts to try to steal their land and place their way of life. A farmer that I talked to in Australia the past couple of days said, yeah, well, we need to beat globalization with internationalism and whether it's not just exchanging ideas, but, you know, whether that can extend to material aid by which, uh, can you imagine, I mean, the kind of general strikes across countries where, you know, one set of farmers in one country, I don't even know what that involves. I mean, that's, that's how far away we are from that history of, of radical agrarianism. Um, how does that extend to across countries? I mean, certainly, uh, some sectors of the economy still very much understand that. You know, you can have dock workers who will go and, you know, shut down a, a port. But uh, to get into a new landscape where we uh, you are able to actualize these kind of internationalisms beyond, you know, very important statements of solidarity and into a kind of material uh, combinations that effectively combat agribusiness's capacity to project power from one side of the world uh, to the other. And the example comes to mind is that 
I mean, one of the reasons I'm looking at uh, murders of environmental activists in Brazil and, and how the relationship to with Cargill is that, um, you know, here in the Twin Cities, Cargill is, is treated with kid gloves. I mean, it's a company town. And they, in essence, get away with greenwashing themselves, making contributions to the local art museum. And I mean, can't tell you how many times I took my kid to a, a theater presentation that was sponsored by Cargill, right? But... Th- they are able, by having a nice green mask on this side of operations, and of course there are all sorts of counterexamples of that here in the States, but for the most part, by being able to act green here, they're able to act murderous abroad. And so there's a connection where um, we are in the position to do really do our part to really bear pressure on cargo here in such a way that it takes the pressure off the indigenous and smallholders of Brazil. So that kind of like kind of relational geography, that kind of activism that goes beyond nearly what's happening in one place. I mean, I can very, we should all very much object what's going on in Brazil. If we can start thinking in these kind of activist relational geographies in which uh, bearing pressure in one place may very well have impact on others. Is anything popping out to you about how this specific pathogen is morphing over time, you know, as it's transmitted, because I know that we heard, you know, it's affecting mainly the elderly, but now I've heard it's kind of morphing. And so it's affecting everybody a little bit differently. Does anything pop out to you about how it's kind of changing that you're recognizing in this pathogen? Pathogens do evolve and they do adapt to their new hosts. And that may very well be happening, especially as you have many more populations around the world infected. You have what's called demic selection in that different strains start to not just evolve independently by chance, but start to adapt to local populations. Well, terrible danger, of course, is that as terrible as things are, there's always a chance they could get worse. Um, you know, I'm always a bearer of good news. I, I, I go think back, I, I always keep it in mind. I always like pin it at the top of my uh, mental post, but it's kind of like in 1918, the first wave in the spring of 1918 wasn't really that bad, although it did kill Trump's uh, grandfather in, in, a, in a day or two. But it was in the, uh, the waves of the fall of 1918 and spring of 1919 where most of the deaths happen. It's intellectually easy to grasp, but emotionally hard to assimilate and that you have a pathogen that really only kills 1%, 2%, maybe in some places 5%. And it's not just the virus, right? It has to do with the ability of a city or a region to respond with a proper public health. But, you know, 1% and it can end up killing many millions more people than if it was a fatality rate of 10%. And that's hard to grasp, you know, like the infection I have, it doesn't seem that bad, but I could see why it, it could uh, do some damage to, to someone older. Or, um, but as far as, that's one thing. So the answer is yes, things do change and shift. Two, it has to do with the background of, of the underlying uh, health of a, of a country, the public health and hospital care on offer. But I also want to point out that this is very much part of the fog of pandemic. Like we don't really even know the specifics in terms of the the details of infection rates, uh, case fatality rates. We don't have a grasp of that. There's of course the political dynamic of uh, attempts to kind of lowball the number of infections. There's the, the gap between knowing when the first case uh, is recognized and how long it's actually been circulating. And there's that report a couple weeks ago of um, biogeography po- report that actually sh- looked at the uh, genetics of the first cases that were identified to be community-based, meaning circulating already in Washington and not to do with anything to do with China, and look at genetics as it compares to that first case in Washington state that was from directly from China. 
And they pretty much concluded that the pathogen had been circulating for six weeks. So like we have like no, we have no grasp of even the most basic aspects of it, the epidemiological numbers. And, you know, it, it's, it could just burn out on its own. It could be not big of a deal. You know, I don't think one day we'll look back on this and laugh, but, you know, it might be, you know, we we dodge the bullet, but I mean, the problem, of course, is the normalization involved. It's like, let us not forget that only a, a couple months ago, SARS-2 spilled over and went human to human and spread around the world. I mean, that's really fucked up. I mean, that's not good at all in any way, shape, or form. And because of the deeply integrated nature of travel and trade, any little thing that gets on that travel network and able to do that can go from one part of the world to the other much faster than it ever could. And so it's like even a 1% case fatality rate, if it infects 4 billion people, that means it's 40 million dead. And that's like nothing in, co- in terms of its deadliness. I mean, if you get into something that gets along the lines of, you know, what Tom brought up, the African swine fever that, uh, I mean, what if it kills like 10% and has that kind of global penetrance? You know, it's not going to be another hundred years before something like this happens. I mean, this is the this is the context of a global agricultural and land use that not only exposes us to more strains spilling over in different types, but also uh, a rocket stem across the world in such a way that even something that really ain't that bad uh, kills so many people. Wow. Sorry, sorry. Thank you so much, Rob. Sure. Uh, thank you very much for, uh, for having me. I appreciate it. And I always like talking to you guys. And, you know, you guys do great work. Stay safe. Uh, let's keep in touch. Hope awesome. you feel better soon, Rob. Thank yeah, you. Well. Yeah. All right. Get well soon, huh? Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Rob Wallace is the author of Big Farms Make Big Flu, Dispatches on Infectious Disease, Agribusiness, and the Nature of Science. Join us next week for another episode in our special secret ingredient COVID-19 series when we talk about the economic side of this pandemic with the eminent economist James K. Gelbreth. For more on The Secret Ingredient podcast, visit our website. It's thesecretingredient.org. And please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review while you're there. We appreciate your support. The Secret Ingredient is produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, and is hosted by Raj Patel, Tom Philpott, and Rebecca McEnroy. For KUT, I'm Miles Bloxon. Thanks for listening. KUT is here to keep you and our community informed. As the station delivers exactly what you expect when you need it most, remember that it's financial support from listeners that make it possible. Join today at KUT.org. And thank you.